I'm Daniel Chacon. Today, my guest is Kadiri Baquer Fernandez, who is a visiting writer here at the University of Texas, El Paso, teaching in creative writing as well as women's and gender studies. She has a PhD from Vanderbilt University and MFA from NYU and several books of poetry. Today, we're going to talk about her most recent book, Ritos de Pasaje. Words on a wire. Words on a wire. 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 Fernandez, welcome finally to Words on a Wire. Thank you so much. <laughs> I think finally, because we've been trying to get you on the show since pre-pandemic, and then the pandemic happened and things turned crazy and we... We lost it. How have you been spending the last year as a poet and as a new professor <laughs> at UTEP? <laughs> yeah, and the pandemic happened and the pandemic is still here. Uh, you know, it's been it's been challenging, but it's also been really rewarding. I think it's been a time of a lot of growth and, and kind of learning a lot um, about myself and my relationship and my own writing and my own teaching. It's It's been an opportunity. It hasn't all been, you know, negative. Yeah. You know, uh, first of all, we're, we're incredibly lucky, uh, you and I and, and others uh, in, uh, who teach at universities, because, uh, yeah. you know, we st- were able to teach online. And even though it was a difficult transformation, if you've never done it before, the fact is, you know, our jobs were secure throughout this whole thing. And because we teach at universities that are R1 status and encourage mm-hmm. our scholarship and our creativity, uh, that being locked in actually encourages what we do in, in, in some Absolutely. sense. Have you been productive as a writer? Yes, I have. Yes, definitely. Especially last, so in the spring, when everything started to happen, I was able to kind of pick up a project that I've been trying to work on for like 15 years. And I just can't find the way around that project. Like, it's just this project that I keep coming back to and keep coming back to. And I just can't find like the form or the tone or my voice in that project because it's more of like a poetic prose project. And I was able to start working on it and I was workshopping it every weekend for the first like two months into the summer of the pandemic Mm -hmm. and was just able to get so much done and really find kind of the shape of it where I wanted to go with it. And that's been really just like really, really wonderful. So, and, and oh, that sounds true. exciting. You know, one of those things, yeah, of being inside, right? Of being quarantined and being left alone with your thoughts and your own writing. Yeah, yeah. You know, when I was a kid, my mom used to say, Danny, you think too much. And I think that's always been true, but I've, you know, somehow found a way to channel that uh, too much thought into my work. Yeah. Um, but uh, I think in 2020, I probably had more time to think uh, just about little tiny minute things which build into these, this incredible network of abstractions that allow me to make connections that I've been trying to make for many, many years and haven't realized until this year. So I, I used yeah. to I ask these people, I, I like to ask people, uh, you know, if the pandemic were to talk to you, what would it say it, when it when when you asked it, why did you come? Yeah. Uh, why are you here? At least on a personal level, why are you here, pandemic? What would it answer to you? I think it would say so that I would prioritize my writing and slow down. You know, I feel like I was trying to do too many things at the same time. My mother also used to tell me, stop thinking so much. And I was always, I started writing from a really young age and was into books from Uh a really young age. And my mom wanted me to be more out in the world. Um, So I think that I'm like, I'm, I'm often multitasking. And I think that the pandemic would definitely say, slow down. You haven't slowed down. So I'm slowing you down to make sure you find um, you know, time to reconsider your priorities in life and to think about your writing. And I think that writing has always been my priority and there have always been things that kind of distract me or take me away from that. Wow, that's, that, that, that's a beautiful way of putting it. You know, it reminds me, I'm, I, I've been reading Ritos de Pasaje, which was a new book when you and I had first decided we were going to record a show. And now, it's, now it seems, uh, not that it seems old, but it's 2019. Yeah. Yeah, yes, that's crazy, yes, isn't it? <laughs> yes, yes, it is. Yes. But uh, but one of the things that I was uh, struck by is um, the uh, the quotes you put to open the book 
One of them is by someone named Samuel Hazo. I, I'm not quite, I don't know who that is. And I, uh, but, um, but this line says, we all survive like exiles. And yeah. I'm wondering how that line, I can see how it actually that line is even more significant under the pandemic because we are like exiles in our own homes. Yeah. Uh, exiles away from communities uh, that we're used to interacting with on a daily basis. Um, or even those communities that we interact with once or twice a year, like conferences or mm-hmm, readings mm-hmm. that we do, uh, uh, visits to Vanderbilt University where you got your PhD and mm-hmm. you know, those kind of communities. Uh, and, um, uh, but, but that we survive like exiles. What did it mean to you before the pandemic and, and what does it mean to you now? Wow. Um, so that, is it okay if I just go ahead and read that specific quote from the beginning? Oh, please. Yeah. Okay. You can do whatever you want. Okay. Absolutely. So, this is just a conversation. Thank you. So I'm going to go ahead and read that opening quote that Daniel is mentioning um, to give the, the audience a better sense. And it says, split by death or distances, we all survive like exiles from the time at hand living where love leads us for love's reasons. We tell ourselves that life, if anywhere, is there. Why isn't it? So I guess this is a really beautiful poem and I will send it to you after our conversation so you read it. But um, before the pandemic, uh, it had to do, I guess, with kind of like a personal journey. Like this book is the second book, is my second book. um, And it's very different from my first book. It's a book in which I kind of gave myself permission to explore uh, styles and themes and and kind of Mm -hmm. tropes that I didn't do in my first book when I was really obsessed with observation um, in that first book. Mm. And it was more of like a a visual exercise uh, that I wrote during my MFA program. So this book came after, like right after the MFA program, and it also came after my mother's death. So the book is kind of, I I wrote it during, I think it took me about five years to write this book. And it has a lot to do with these different stages in life and kind of moving from different places. So I was born in the U.S. of Puerto Rican parents. And then I moved to Puerto Rico as a child. And I learned Spanish there. And then I moved back to the U.S. And then I moved back to Puerto Rico. And I did that for a few years, um, kind of back and forth. And then I ended up in El Paso, right, which is a border city. Um, and I, and I think that this, we all survive like exiles has a lot to do with these different movements, these different transitions and migrations, mm-hmm. um, that kind of mark the different stages of my life, but that are also at play in the book. And now, um, with the, with the pandemic, so it, of course it has a different meaning because uh-huh. I, I'm thinking about how our reality is now conditioned by zoom, right. And the value right. by being framed and being in a screen and how everything feels kind of um, incomplete and insufficient and, and kind of like a like a rehearsal to try and be in touch with each other in more authentic and significant ways. Um, and there definitely is a feeling of isolation, a feeling of trying to bridge and trying to close that gap that, that we're still kind of working towards but don't have the formula quite yet, right? Um, mm-hmm. And then finally, in that quote, there is something that has to do with love, right? It says, we, like, we, we go where love takes us for love reasons. And I think mm-hmm. that there's also that about how we build these relationships, these effective relationships, and how they ultimately condition and decide where we end up or where we move and, and kind of how there's a certain right. mm-hmm. affect, right, that goes into these movements and, and transitions. Yeah, I had never, I had never considered uh, uh, love and exile together, but it makes a lot of sense because when we do exile, it's usually out of love. We want, we do it for our family. Yeah. Uh, if we're, uh, you know, immigrants from Mexico, we do it for our family. We come here for our family as hard as it is, and that's love. Uh, if we uh, marry somebody who gets a job in another city, like, you know, every one of us have had to experience before, we're doing that out of love, you know, and we're yeah. exiling again to a, a further place. I had to live in rural Minnesota for a year, and my God, did that feel like exile. <laughs> but, uh, but I love that connection between love and exile because it, uh, it, 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 it makes a lot of sense. And I think writers in general need to establish a life of exile on some level. Absolutely. You know, we need that Absolutely. time alone. And it's yeah, motivated definitely. by our love for what we do. 
yeah, for our love for writing and for language, right? And of like finding, just like finding ways to convey really heavy and complex experiences and emotions. And, and we've been talking a little bit about that kind of like these common notions of what the, the figure of the poet entails, right, to us. And many students mm -hmm. talk about this kind of sense of isolation, right. of being alienated, of kind of being um, above right. or outside or being like this marginal um, kind of figure in society. Of course, many students say we have to break that down. You know, we have to do something else <laughs> with this and we have to write in right. ways in which we, we can still kind of build on the communal experience. Right, right. And I think that's where, uh, you know, a lot of our young uh, writers and well, even writers from my generation uh, uh, would not separate their their uh, uh, identification as poet with their identification as activists, of as cultural, political activists, you know, of it's course. like, how could you separate the two, right? Of course. And I, I, I agree with that. I, I feel like all writing in one way or another is autobiographical, you know, to a certain, mm -hmm. to a certain degree, kind of regardless of that right. intention, there is an amount of it that is, that is autobiographical. It is a self-writing or an exercise, exercise in self-writing. Well, I loved the book. I loved entering into the poems one by one. And sometimes uh, the transformation was, uh, you know, uh, both uh, philosophical, metaphysical, uh, but also, you know, very uh, uh, visceral. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I felt like I was being taken in, into every single poem, invited into every single poem. But I wanted to start off with a general statement about the book. Uh, on Amazon, where you could buy the book, by the way, I mean, obviously, I would encourage people, if they live in El Paso, to go down to Literarity book, uh, Bookshop mm -hmm. and buy it there. I think there's some signed copies there. Mm -hmm. uh, and I have and if, boxes you know, of copies from the presentations that I never had because of the <laughs> pandemic. So you can also reach oh out my to God. And I will get you a copy. Go ahead, sorry. Oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. I, I think that that happened to me too. Kafka had just come out and I was ready to do a bunch of readings and and uh, uh, they didn't happen. But but I would encourage, yeah, to, to reach out in that sense. But you can buy it on Amazon if you're lazy like me. Sometimes yeah. I want the book now mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to a week from now. And, and so my little confession is I sometimes give Jeff Bezos a little <laughs> bit more money than he needs. But you can, but, but the description on Amazon uh, is, uh, it was both in English and Spanish. It says, uh, Ritos de Pasaje is an intimate portrayal of loss, orphanhood, homesickness, and Puerto Rico. I'm wondering what you think about that description. Uh, I, I think that description is uh, a very, I guess, broad way to try and approach a book that is trying to do some really complex things and address some, some complex issues. I, I think it's appropriate, though. Um, it does definitely have a lot to do with kind of exploring what it is to be in the diaspora, uh, right? what it is mm -hmm. to be outside of Puerto Rico. Um, but to have family in, in all these different places, so a certain sense of displacement and also belonging that is often exacerbated or heightened by being outside, right? So kind of like being in the U.S., but looking or always kind of looking towards uh, the island and how that also kind of shapes your yearning and your desire to be home, but also the perception or the image, like the imaginary you have of home, right? And how it's also right. conditioned by that distance. Um, so it also has to do with, with orphanhood because the book was written um, over about five years and goes between 2013 and 2018. And during those years, both of my parents died in different moments. Um, wow. So it does have a lot to do with kind of reflecting on this um, sense of not belonging that has to do with being Puerto Rican, being like right part of this colonial territory mm -hmm. because of the relationship with the United States and being out and being displaced, but also yearning for Puerto Rico. But then also your like both of your parents being gone. And how does that also kind of condition your origin story or your sense of belonging when those mm -hmm. both, you know, kind of like anchors or pillars um, of your identity are, are, are removed and are no longer 
were there. And I was relatively younger than now, right? So uh, how does that also <laughs> we all play into it? Yeah. Um, so, right, right. and then it's also a lot about Puerto Rico. And it's, and it's again, it's also different, really different from the first book in which I remember I was trying to not be very social or political. And I was trying to be clever and witty. And right, I was writing those <laughs> poems in an MFA right, right. program in which there was a certain like celebration of like a certain type of writing. And then I think that many people that have been in MFA programs know that one of the challenges is learning to not be overly conditioned by the criticism you receive by your peers, right? Um, And I feel like something that tends to happen is you start to anticipate what your different peers are going to say or suggest in your writing. And then you start to write for them rather than for yourself or to develop your own poetic. Um, So in this book, um, there is a lot about Puerto Rico, about the hurricane, about what it means to be, um, you know, part of this country, but also to be displaced and outside of it. and, And what happens when, you know, there's a hurricane like Maria and there's so much, you know, going on and you can't contact your family and you don't know who's, who's alive or who isn't alive. And you don't know, you know, you find out in the news, like the scarce news that someone drowned in their house and that people are burying people in their backyards because their towns are disconnected and you're still mm-hmm. not like able to contact your own family. Right. So there are a lot of poems that are also kind of reflecting on Hurricane Maria and the crisis and the forensic crisis afterwards. Right. Well, you know, that was really an important uh, point that you bring up that I don't know if uh, a lot of non-writers understand, but I think anybody who's been through the MFA experience does, that, you know, the experience is partially workshop where you write a poem, you take it to workshop, and then they tell you what's wrong with it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and, and it sustains us as writers because uh, I think a lot of our impulse to write has its roots in not a direct connection, but at least is connected to how uh, our mothers putting our poems on the refrigerators, getting praise mm-hmm. for it. And so we become conditioned after a while to want the praise of the workshop, to want them to say, wow, this blew me away. And and I, yeah. I don't know what your workshop environment was like, but they can get really vicious oh, or they yeah. could get too oh, much yeah. praise. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and either one is, is detrimental to the process. Yeah, I I feel, so we talk about this a lot in the class that I'm teaching right now. Um, This comes up often, right? Um, There's, there, and there seems, it comes up in class and then it comes up privately also, right? This conversation about Mm -hmm. how do you filter out? um, How do you, uh, how do you kind of pick what really serves you and what really um, make sense to your own project without feeling like everything is an attack, without feeling like it's necessarily that something is wrong. And I constantly reminding students that when you enroll in an MFA program and as a student MFA program, part of your job is to to kind of learn to be a better reader, right? And that part of that learning to be a better reader is to make recommendations, is to make suggestions, and that it would kind of reflect terribly on you if you just say your poem is great, you know, there's nothing needed here. Right, right. So it's part, part of it is, is an exercise, but of course it's easier said than done. Um, and and right. I think that I, I always tell students, you know, the sooner you learn to kind of manage and filter all of the criticism, the more you're going to benefit and take advantage of the program because, in my experience, um, it was a little vicious at times in my MFA. Um, mm. But I do. Where, where feel, did you go? NYU. Yes. 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 It was. It was. It really depended on the course, and it was a mix of things. And you know, sometimes. Oh, but the writers are great there. So I imagine yes. sometimes. Yes. Yes. Sometimes oh. great writers can be vicious. Yes. Yes. <laughs> No, I feel like it was incredibly productive and it was one of the best times of my life, right? To be able, like, it's a huge privilege to be able to just be immersed in reading and writing and to be read by others Um, and to, you know, to get that attention. Like, it's a, a huge privilege. Um, but yeah, I, I feel like sometimes we, we waste too much time in that workshop process, or at least feeling kind of the backlash of the work, workshop that way paralyzes our writing. And I think that's something that right. we all need to kind of work with so that we can really make the best of the, of the workshop, you know? Yeah. And I think that one of the, at least for me, the, the, the creative process usually begins with, uh, 
uh, following language uh, and being willing to submit to that language or rhythm or incantation, but just to be willing to go there. Uh, and when you're thinking too much about how other people are going to respond, you're pulled out of that language. Of course. And you start thinking about it too much. Yeah, and, and it can really flatten your work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the things I love about this this book is every poem that you go into deepens the entire experience. At first, one of the things I like to do when I get a book of poems, I love opening a new book of poems for the first time. I'm sure you do too. I think it's a universal thing among writers. I'm not a poet, but uh, I love just, you know, flipping through it like this. Uh, oh, there's something, you know, whatever. But the other thing is looking at the table of contents and I, which I almost read as a poem sometimes because of the, the, the titles. And yeah. when I saw that you didn't have a table of contents, I go, what? And <laughs> as I read the poems, I realized that the book would have been somehow flattened. Something would have been taken away had there been a table of contents. Can you talk about that decision? Because I think I understand it. Yeah, so uh, the first book does have a table of contents, but this one doesn't. And I think it's because in a certain way, I feel like all of the poems are kind of part of this long breath, right? This kind of like long poem or what we say in Spanish, like un poema de largo aliento, right? Like it's just part mm. of this really long journey. Um, and right. I, I, what I did do in this book was that I separated it in three sections. So that was kind of my organizing principle rather than right. including this index. I also have trouble with titles. So, you know, anyone that has or seen the book or has, you know, checks it out. Um, none of the poems have titles. I, I usually don't title right. my poems. I'm awful at, at giving names to things. Um, so they, none of the poems have titles, but what I did was that I, I divided the book in three sections and the first section is called Duerme Vela, which is kind of that state of when you're tossing and turning, you're starting to fall asleep, but you're not deeply asleep. Um, the second section is called Ritos, rites, or like rituals. And then the last section is called Matria, which was a play on the word Patria, uh, right, for like fatherland. But instead, with a, instead of a P, it has an M, so it's more like a play on, on motherland. So the poems are kind of organized under those different um, themes rather than kind of a, a specific structure and like titles of poems, etc. I, I think I'm also just um, constantly trying to think of ways to transgress um, some of those expectations in a poetry yeah. book, so, you know, including nice. a specific nice. index or specific titles yeah. and, and kind of, yeah, so maybe the next book, but it'll have one, but not this one. Right, right. <laughs> And and see that's the key right there is the book demands it not the it's not an exterior decision yeah it's a decision that needs to be made by the book itself yeah and I think that now that I'm thinking I'm thinking about this just now is that this book I also included some passages in prose um, some mm-hmm. like poetic prose passages that are more narrative um, and it's something I hadn't done before. And then I felt like those passages just, they didn't have a title and I would have to force myself into coming up with a title or using the very beginning right. of the, of that passage or like that vignette um, to be able to, to put together that index. So I guess I just was resisting it kind of all together. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and it makes a lot of sense. And, and each poem begins with uh, the first line uh, capitalized. So that kind of, you know, for the reader pulls it, okay, this is a new poem. Like, uh, on yes. uh, you would think that's the name of the poem, but it's actually the, the, the first line. Yes. Um, and I want to share uh, this beautiful passage in that poem that starts with hasta dormida. Um, uh, my Spanish isn't, uh, isn't great. You know, I talk with a really bad accent, so I'm going to read it kind of... Uh, Maybe you could read it in Spanish and I'll read it in English. Um, you translated and, it? Yeah, but not a good translation. Your translation will be okay. much better. <laughs> I but, don't uh, have a translation. I can't, I okay. can't self-translate. But, uh, but, but that part where it says, Vatras los rostros que dejas en los azulejos como quien recorre las llanuras de un país abandonando. Uh, 
En Busca de la Terna de Antes. And I wanted to get to that line. Maybe you should read it because it's more beautiful, I'm sure, if you read it than, than my Pocho Spanish. Just, just those. The... I, I think you did just fine, but I will read it. Thank, Thank you, Daniel. <laughs> um, hasta dormida se desboca por los portales. Va tras los rastros que dejas en los azulejos, como quien recorre las llanuras de un país abandonado en busca de la ternura de antes. But I love that image. Uh, and here's what I'm getting. And I, I did a really bad literal translation. Uh, but let me tell you what I picture first. You know, in the Azul, uh, 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 the, uh, what is it, the Azulejos, which I guess is like tiles, right? And perhaps mm -hmm. even mm -hmm. like, I see tiles in like an old home in Puerto Rico or something. I see, yeah. you know, a, 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 an old home. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. after, throughout the years, we tend to create these, our own patterns in the tiles that we walk every day. It might be a spill of something or a chip of something. And there's all these, 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 which I guess would be like, uh, I translate as traces, um, traces. <laughs> sketches perhaps. But, but, but what's really beautiful about it is that, uh, you know, going, it's like going after these, these, these traces uh, that you left in the tiles, like someone who travels the plains of an abandoned country searching for the tenderness of before. Yeah. I love that. That's that a great translation. Incredible, <laughs> incredible longing. Yeah. You know, to, to, to search for that and, you know, that, that those abandoned planes for the tenderness of, of before. A lot of this is about going back to that Amazon thing, only this is a much way better way of saying it, is about that creating comfort, losing comfort, and then looking for comfort again in the patterns that we create. Yeah. Yeah. I... So I'll, so this poem is really special to me as well, and also just really painful. Um, so, so as you know, right, um, this book has a lot to do with mourning, right? And a lot of the poems have to do with my mother, or at least with like the maternal space. Um, so like the home, the home in Puerto Rico and like these memories and a lot of the poems are kind of revisiting these places in which we were together um, and trying to recover something from those places, conversations, um, I don't know, laughter, jokes, etc. And so this poem that, that you're making reference to is part of the very first section of the book, which is called Duerme Vela, right? Which is, again, that state of like being asleep and being awake. And it's kind of a play on, on, on the fact that my mother was bipolar and she was often sedated. Um, so she would wake up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom and she would literally kind of stumble um, from one room to the other and just kind of stumble around the house And, you know, sometimes she would wake up maybe sleeping in the living room or maybe in the hallway because she'd just kind of fallen asleep, drifted and kind of fallen asleep in the middle of the night. Um, and when I was in when I was in New York doing my MFA, she was alone in Puerto Rico um, and we would mm. you know, call her all the time. But she was alone. And I remember that one day she told me, you know, sometimes I just sit here with the cell phone in front of me and I caress and kind of pat on the cell phone, wishing that you would call. Oh my God. So you can imagine. <laughs> and, and she would say, yeah, almost in like, oh my God. Image, like of your mother. Just, and I would call her all the right. time. Right. But she was alone. Um, so she would say, you know, I would sit there with the phone and I would pat it. And, and so I, I had this image of my mother often of just kind of knowing, right, knowing the way she would sleep of her kind of waking up and just kind of being lost and like drifting around in the house at nighttime because she was heavily sedated due to her right. medication. Um, and so then, she was not only in the duerma vuela state, but it was even more encouraged by the drugs. So yes. there's probably more illusions. Yeah. So there's like all of that. And then there's also kind of this play on like the dream world. You know, she would wake up and she'd tell me, mm -hmm. I dreamed this. I didn't know if you were here um, or if you like she'd call mm -hmm. and say, I'm not sure if I dreamed that you were here or weren't. So the end of this poem, right, which is all about this kind of like traveling and drifting, but searching for the trace, like so like mm -hmm. searching for 
power that that source of, of yearning, like what you're desiring, what you're missing. And then in busca de la ternura de antes, right, is to try and, and grasp of, to be able to recover some of that tenderness and right. some of that love and some of that like heat of being together, right, that isn't there. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, the longing definitely comes out in that poem, and uh, it's heartbreaking. And I can't help but think of this book I'm reading right now by this uh, neuroscientist. His name is Alcahonan Goldberg, and he's writing a book called, he wrote a book called The Paradox of Wisdom, where essentially he is describing wisdom as these abilities to see patterns and to see uh, uh, models that we accumulate throughout our lives. And so that even when we begin to erode, uh, 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 even when neurological erosion begins in older people, because they have all these patterns that are available to, available to them, they can hook up to meaning very quickly and give you answers about the future, predicting just based on these patterns. And yeah. I couldn't help but think of the human impulse or I, maybe it's not an impulse, but yeah, yeah, I think it is to, to see faces everywhere. If you look at a house, you see the, the door, you see a nose, and then you see the two windows, and those are the eyes. Uh, I forget what Hume called it, pareidolia or, or mm -hmm. something like that. But we all have this, uh, and, and it's part of our ability to recognize patterns. But as you grow older, and as you get closer to death, and as you create have created all your life all these different patterns i would imagine that walking through the room is walking through a landscape of faces yes faces everywhere absolutely and, absolutely and and and, and kind of i couldn't help but think a lot about that when i was reading your poems how there's ghosts everywhere yeah. because if you do see a face you're going to project your consciousness and experience on that face and it's going to be a loved one yeah. yeah, yeah. I I definitely feel like the book is kind of filled with with ghosts, right? Of yeah, of family members of different people, and kind of and and if not ghosts, at least kind of a sense of visions or like certain apparitions, right? Kind of that kind of come in and out, um, and are shaping in many ways the different poems. You know, and I think that's why the older you get and the closer you get to 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 to, to death you might be in a conversation with somebody and then suddenly turn over here and start having a, a conversation or a word or two and others don't understand. I think what it is, is you're seeing a pattern, whether it's within you and you're projecting that pattern onto a memory, which is rooted in that mm -hmm. wanting to go back to a tender place. Yes, definitely, definitely. There, there is like a, a yearning to recover, um, to revisit, right? To be able to, to kind of be in that time again that is no longer right um have you seen i'm not sure right. if you've seen the film poetry from the korean director no oh so we're so we're watching in our class today we're going to be talking about this this film this korean film called poetry and the main character is an older lady named Miha or misha and um uh. and she she's they discover that she has alzheimer um, she starts to forget mm. words. She goes to the doctor for something else. And when she's talking to the doctor, she realizes she can't remember certain words. And the doctor says, you know, I'm more concerned about that than this, you know, than the discomfort that actually brought you here. So it turns out that she's starting to develop Alzheimer. And the first, you know, kind of signs are that she's forgetting, um, you know, everyday words like wallet, mm. for example. Um, so she enrolls in a, in a poetry course and, and starts, um, you know, kind of trying to look at nature in different ways but she has certain challenges at time because she's forgetting certain words but in the uh, end that almost contributes more to her poetic exercise because she starts describing things so rather than saying it falls um you know or it simply falls she'll say like it'll dr it drifts from its place of you know so it becomes more uh, wordy but how oh she um and i think that in many ways poetry is about that also and right. and she start, starts to write poetry in a way to almost kind of contain her memories right to kind of mm -hmm. like root some of these memories before she keeps forgetting language so yeah definitely there is a lot of that wow, i'll have to i'll have to check that out unfortunately yeah. you know i have a um, a, a two-year-old and a 12-year-old and 
And the only time I get to watch TV is is when we're all watching it together. So we usually have to watch some uh, Netflix series about a witch and a, <laughs> and a vampire or whatever whatever uh, uh, is on at the time. But I'd love to I'd love to be able to to watch that movie. And I'm gonna I'm gonna yeah. write it down. I'm gonna send it to you. I'm gonna send it to you. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, awesome. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about that word, which I think is one of the most beautiful words I've ever heard, which is duerma, duerma, duerma vela. Mm-hmm. We don't have that word in, in English that I know of. Mm-hmm. The closest we get is hypnagogic. Oh. There is this hypnagogic state, which is be, the state between sleeping and being awake. When sometimes when you're awake, you'll actually be dreaming at the same time. And, and you may even at times project an image from the dream onto the landscape so that when you yeah. see a coat, you might think it's your grandfather uh, mm-hmm. or you see a folds in the sheet and you see a face and, you know, whatever it is. But but because it's not just re- pattern recognition, but it's actually being into subconscious and the conscious, it's often a transformative experience. In fact, Swedenborg, his whole conversation with angels that he would have when he was walking the streets of London was in that state where he hadn't mm-hmm. slept for weeks and he'd mm-hmm. be walking and so of course he's talking to angels but a lot of the book seems to take place in this which again I think it's my favorite word in, in, in any language now because yeah. it's much yeah. better than hypnagogic <laughs> can, can you talk about that state and 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 how it leads or how it's connected to your poetry. Yeah, definitely. I, I also agree that it's a beautiful word. And I had thought about calling the whole collection Duerme Vela um, at some point. That was going to be the title. Um, and then I literally, it literally, it's Duerme, which is sleep, and Vela, which is veil. So it's Awake. Like a sleep yeah. Veil. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I guess that it's connected in many ways. Um, it's so, as I mentioned yeah. before, it is connected to um, kind of thinking these poems and the first poems have a lot to do with um, kind of this image of someone that is drifting and is lost and that is wandering um, at nighttime, right? Between being asleep, being awake, being sedated, but also kind of the, the dream world, right? The, the oniric is definitely um, kind of playing out through a lot of these poems so it's connected in many ways to to yes kind of revisiting and and writing or portraying my mother and kind of her movements in and out of the house but it also has to do with the process of mourning um right so when uh your your sleep is kind of altered or at least it was in my case um I had a lot of a lot of dreams during the first years um after my mother passed and a lot of these and, and kind of, yeah, so I would wake up at 3 a.m. at the witching hour, you know, wake up at 3 a.m. and then fall asleep, but not sure, be sure if you're awake and kind of have these weird dreams. But then, right. you know, so kind of this in and out of being in between planes almost um, of not being either yeah. here nor there. Um, and how, you know, that's not only something that had to do explicitly, like at the content level with the poems that have to do with her, but also with one's own experience with mourning and what does it mean to like, how is it that mourning can sometimes be so strong that it removes you from the present and kind of draws you into Mm -hmm. another time, right? That has nothing to do with being awake that has nothing to do with kind of being um, in that moment. Um, so just kind of this this in and out, this this kind of vaiving, right, of, of kind of um, hesitating, kind of like drifting between um, different times and different periods and different memories and how all of this is happening because of mourning, because there's yearning, because there's homesickness, mm-hmm. because there's death, because there's a desire to recover. Um, and how, how difficult it is, um, perhaps to, to kind of pinpoint, right. To say, this is exactly what's going on here, or this belongs in this realm and not in the other realm, right. How kind of, there are these different realms and experiences that are kind of overlapping and it's hard to tell what is a vision. It's hard to tell what is a dream. It's hard to tell what is just a memory. What is yearning, right. What is happening? Like, what is the present of this book? Right. Um, so I guess right, that right. that word Vela, kind of allowed me to play with this is this is kind of playing or, or transgressing time like in a lineal sense. 
Right, right. And and it, if you have mourning as you're going through this duerme vela state, uh, it's definitely going to influence what you see and how you experience this in between space, yeah. which uh, has been described by different. Uh, uh, people who have experienced it as sometimes even as the astral plane or mm -hmm. the imaginary realms, uh, you know, where you take a little reality and a little bit of the, the illusion and you put them together and, and, and enter into this landscape. If you're deeply in, in, in mourning or have incredible emotional uh, uh, experience going on, it's going to... Uh, it's going to filter a lot of what you experience through that. And, but I'm wondering if you could enter that as a poet uh, um, without the morning. And if you are able to ever get into that state and just start writing poetry. I don't know if this question makes any sense, by the way. It's like, I tend to follow no. the language and hope that it no, comes no, no. up okay. <laughs> no, I, I, I think it makes sense to me. And I think that the answer is yes, you can enter that, that like plane um, without the morning. But I feel like this book was the cathartic process that I mm. necessary in order to be able to access that plane without the right. morning, right? So kind of like, I needed to get everything that is in this book out right. in order to make room um, for that other experience to be possible, right? To be able to access those other planes and kind of write from those places once I had already removed all that. And I, I have to mention right. this, I'll, I'll mention it quickly, but you kind of brought this up because you mentioned um, the astral, right? Um, and when I, was a, when I was a child and we were living in New York, we were living really close to upstate New York for a few years, um, my, my mother's side of the family was really, they were like into what in Puerto Rico we call Mesa Blanca, which would be like white table or like white magic. Mm. Um, right. So it's like a oh. form of, of spiritism, um, that, you know, it didn't have to do with Santeria. So it was like more, um, just like, you know, uh, good and positive and whatnot. So the story is that my, my grandmother and my, a lot of my, you know, my mother and other people, they practice astral projection, um, for years. So mm -hmm. when I was a child, I remember that my mother used to lay on the couch, um, in the middle of the day for an hour, you know, whatnot. And we would do other things around her. And sometimes, and one day she sat down and told us, you know, that she was, that she, I was like, were you sleeping? And she said, no, I was at home. It's like, what do you mean you were at home? Mm -hmm. And she'd say, you know, I was in Puerto Rico with your grandmother, just making sure everything was okay. Wow. And next thing you know, the phone rings. It's my grandmother from Puerto Rico telling my mom, what were you doing here? You know, like I felt you, like I felt your presence wow. in the house. And right, my mom right. just being like, I just wanted to make sure everything was okay. Like I was... I'm homesick. I miss you. You know, I miss, I miss being home. I miss being with family. So of course, you know, this is all very subjective and, and just, you know, if, when you believe you believe, and if you don't, that's totally fine. And everything can be, right. you know, um, kind of intellectualized and, and rationalized in different ways. Right, right. But I, I find it interesting that you mentioned the astral because there is an element um, of that in these poems in which I'm, I'm kind of thinking about, right. um, about growing up in a household in which people believed very Gabriel Garcia Marquez, like people believed in spirits right, right. and believed that you could travel and that you could see and that you could, you know, kind of, and like clairvoyance. And I, and there is, um, an element of that, that is kind of a, um, shaping some of these, Poem. Yeah, and and you 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 said you know subjective experience, uh, you know that it's a subjective subjective experience, but you know quantum mechanics itself is subjective. I mean, it doesn't make any sense without a consciousness within which to filter it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, and and also, I'm thinking about upstate New York. That was historically very rich with spiritism and with a lot of movements that led to people like Madame Blavatsky. And, mm -hmm. uh, and, and these other esoteric uh, spiritualists, or they, they became known as spiritualists, ah. but that's not a, mm -hmm. a term that, that mm -hmm. they necessarily use. So that landscape itself is very rich for mm -hmm. that kind of ability to go in and out of realities, which also I think is, is important for poetry itself. Uh, I, there's this poem that you have, 
Uh, it doesn't have a title, of course, uh, <laughs> but it's on uh, it's on page. What page is it? I have it written down here, uh, page twenty three. Yes, cerca de la seis. Uh, in fact, I was going to ask you to read a poem, and I was wondering if you would be willing to read this poem, because this is the kind of poem that really can have that ability to transform you from where you're sitting to taking you into this world. Yeah, definitely. Can you read it? Yeah, sure. Um, cerca de las seis, tres gallinas van de la casa del vecino a la choza de las herramientas donde te trepabas a tumbar aguacates en agosto. En el balcón aún duerme aquel perro enorme que una noche confundimos con un cadáver. ¿Te acuerdas? Y las niñas de rizos, sin zapatos, dejaron de recoger el recao detrás de tu ventana. That's, that's, that's beautiful. And I, it takes me back. Are we going to Puerto Rico here? Yes, yes, yes. This is, this is Puerto Rico. This is uh, my, the last house my mother lived was this little wooden house. So it's actually the cover of the book. I should have mentioned this before. Oh. The last house she lived in was this house. This is a drawing that my brother made of that house that was in like the outskirts. And um, this literally, it had happened. One day we woke up really, really early and it was still... Um, it wasn't that light outside and right in front of the door, we saw this just big kind of mount of something that we couldn't tell what it was. And we started to think, and this is kind of going to what you're saying about how you can see things or how you see people or how, right. Um, mm -hmm. And we didn't think it was a dog, like from the size of it and how it was kind of rolled mm -hmm. up. We thought it was someone in fetal position, just laying in front of the door. Um, and right. it could have been because there was no fence or anything around the house. Um, so, so yeah, this poem is about, is about that. Um, and also trying to kind of engage in a dialogue or a conversation with someone that can no longer respond. Right. And how, and how right. things have changed in the end of the poem, it says, you know, and the girls that had curly hair and didn't have any shoes, they stopped picking up recao. Recao is like Puerto Rican cilantro, um, behind oh, okay. your window because we used to see them, um, in the backyard, um, doing that. So. Wow. Yeah. Well, that image is is fantastic. When you say you know in in the in the on the balcony, um, still sleeping is that enormous dog that we confused for a for a, a skeleton for a you know or a body, body. A yeah. body. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. I, that's 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 really fantastic. And all, again, you know, these images are appearing all over. So there's all these different wormholes that take me into different realities in your book. It's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a fantastic immersive experience. And I think had you had a, a table of contents, it probably wouldn't have been the same experience, you know? Yeah. 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 Definitely. Maybe the next book, you know, just not this one. Right. Yeah. It's depends. Like, it's like depends. I feel, I feel like the book kind of, you know, determines a certain amount of things on its own. Right. Yeah. Right, right. Uh, you know, we, we were running a little bit out of time, but I wanted to ask you about a poem of yours that I read on uh, rigorousmag.com called Maple Street. It's a heartbreaking <laughs> poem uh, in mm -hmm. English. Are you writing in English? I do. I have a, a complex relationship with English. I, I actually learned Spanish when I was nine years old and we moved to Puerto Rico. I had been living in upstate New wow. York before that. Um, so I've always written in both languages. I feel like I am able to do things in English that I don't allow my, myself to do in Spanish and kind of vice versa. Mm -hmm. um, like I'm two different people. Um, so wow. I not my go-to language, let's say. Um, right, I always right. try and explore with, I, I feel more at home in Spanish. Will you have a book in English that's going to come out someday? I hope so. I hope so. I feel like it's something that I'm kind of, I, I do actually have um, about 20 or 25 poems somewhere and like little passages. Um, like I do have material in English that just needs work and revisiting and for me to feel confident enough to try and push that out in the world. Uh, mm -hmm. So I hope so. Well, uh, you know, I love what you said that you can do things in English that you can't do in Spanish and vice versa. And it makes me wonder about your writing process. How do you go from the impulse? What is the impulse to the final draft? 
Wow. So I, you know, I don't, the writing process, I, I really love talking about this, um, in class also. I, I, I don't write as much as I, as I'd like to write, or at least not as often as I'd like to, which has to do with multitasking and trying to do so many things at the same time. Um, I, I, I often talk about not so much inspiration as it is feeling kind of like an internal weather, um, that kind of motivates me into writing. It's kind of like feeling like being in a certain place. Um, like it's just almost like a bodily type of sensation, um, mm. that I feel like kind of predisposes me into being ready to, to start writing. I do spend a lot of time revising my poetry though. Um, so I'm, I'm not so much of like a, I right. sit down and boom, I, there's the poem. I feel like the poem is kind right. of wandering around these and then eventually it starts coming out slowly, but I spend a lot of time just writing, mm. rewriting, scratch, rewriting, and kind of shaping it um, afterwards. Okay, I'm going to ask you a question that I think I already know the answer to. English, Spanish, uh, does the poem decide what language or do you decide? The, the poem decides what language, definitely. I feel like the poem kind of starts. Right. I usually don't know where the poem is going, but I do have a thread of words that have just been kind of haunting or, you know, like moving and kind of drifting around in my head for days. And right. it can be in English or in Spanish and that kind of determines. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, that's that's what I thought you would have answered because your poems are so organic. I don't feel like I'm... Uh, being preached at. I don't feel like there's, uh, uh, I don't feel like I'm reading an essay, although the metaphysics are as complex as any essay I've ever read, uh, read but they're just really beautiful poems and, and fun to enter into. I'd like to thank Kadiri Vaquer Fernandez for joining me on Words on a Wire. The name of the book is Ritos de Pasaje, available locally in the Literarity Bookshop here in El Paso, Texas, and available online wherever your favorite books are sold. Please buy books. See you next time. Mm-hmm.